All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to another edition of the Compliance Guy. And as always, on a Tuesday, it's a hashtag Terry Tuesday. Yay! <laughs> hanging out here with my good friend Terry Fletcher. As always, Terry, welcome. Thanks for hanging out with me. And thanks for, you know, just being a part of this whole thing. No, I appreciate you having me. And it's a fun Tuesday to record today. It's 2-22-22. So it's yeah. definitely the Tuesday, if you get it. Tuesday. And I thought I was corny, but that's all right. That's cool. It's a <laughs> It's a little corny. <laughs> so, you know, here's one of the things that I want to say to each and every single one of y'all that are tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with Terry and I. I cannot tell you how much we both appreciate all of the feedback that you give us, um, the love that you show us, and the respect, um, you know, that a lot of these organizations are telling their employees that, look, this is something that we really want to mandate that you guys listen to because there's a lot of great information in here to help you as auditors, coders, billers be more efficient at your job and to help you sometimes navigate what can only be described as muddy waters. That's a good so, way to put it. Yeah. So again, thank you to each and every single one of y'all um, who's just helping us grow this podcast. And we appreciate you all of you for sure. Absolutely. So today um <clears throat> our episode is part two of the appeals process and if you go back and listen to the prior hashtag terry tuesday episode on the compliance guy obviously you can find that on more than 80 podcast platforms you can find it on linkedin either under my feed or terry's um you know that the first uh, uh portion of this podcast we focused on the first two levels of appeal, which were the redetermination and reconsideration. And I think we went through and we tried to provide you all the do's and don'ts, the pitfalls, the things that you should be doing to prepare your denied claims for adjudication at an appeal level. And today we want to go ahead and finish out this um, two-part series by talking about the next three levels of appeal, which obviously uh, are the disposition by the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeal, which is OMA. Uh, level four, which is the review by a Medicare Appeal Council. And level five, which is a judicial review held in the U.S. District Court. So with that, what I'll do is, Terry, let me go ahead and pause. Let me uh, turn it over to you and let's start talking about the level three appeal for the administrative law judge. Okay. So the first thing I wanted to circle back to is just make sure before you get into your appeal that it is definitely an appealable situation. So just, you know, kind of reiterating some of the things that we started out with that if you, you want to make sure that it has to be something you can appeal. So if it's a rejected claim, that's an unprocessable claim. That means that there was something missing and you need to find that information and then add it and then hopefully rebuild it. A denied claim is what we're talking about. So this means that it may contain sufficient information to process, but you weren't paid 
or or you were paid based on it was applied to the beneficiaries deductible and coinsurance, but because of medical uh, Medicare policies or issues with the information. So did it support medical necessity? Did you kind of go, you know, was there a problem with uh, frequency guidelines? Was there an irregulatory um, blunder made? You know, what was the, the denial for instead of a rejected claim? So just know the difference there. The, the other thing that um, I think is important is I think there's a lot of listeners, um, Sean, that probably haven't ever been beyond a level two appeal. So the first one, just to reiterate, was a redetermination. The second one's a reconsideration. And so getting to the level three, which is the decision by Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals, now you have a threshold requirement. So um, they talk about the annual threshold requirement, which means it could also be a batch of claims, not necessarily one claim that you're trying to get consideration for or an appeal for. So keep that in mind. There's also some, um, and I hate to call it frequency guidelines, but there are deadlines, let's call it that, uh, for level three hearings or reviews. They have to be made within 60 days of the receipt of the reconsideration decision. And here's a big one. It also has to be completed on the, what we call OMHA 100 form. So the OMHA-100 form. I know a lot of practices that have taken this on have uh, just try to put it in letter form and those can get rejected. So they have to be in writing and they could be in letter form, but know uh, what your, your specific payer wants. But Sean, I have a quick question before we head into just some of the details of level three. Let's say you didn't hit that that 180 threshold and you basically had your first level denied, your second level, continue the denial. At that point, is you know, is somebody out of luck if they don't yeah. have that threshold? Yeah. It's over. Yep. Yeah, because it's over at that point. yeah, it, 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 there's there's a threshold for a reason. And I can't I gotta tell you, <laughs> I've actually had um a number of times where I've had a dispute that made it to level two, the reconsideration with the quick. And, you know, we had that open discussion period and we got onto a call and, you know, we explained the situation and lo and behold, we got a number of partially favorables, right? And yeah. when you look at the outstanding amount, it was just under the threshold. To be able to take it to the ALJ, which was to me kind of their way of saying, buzz off. I'm going to use a nice word, you know, kind of right. um, Yeah, I'm going to use that nice word today. And um, wound up having to explain to the client, the client's like, but I don't understand. Sean, look, every single one of these is the same, and they're just rejecting it willy nilly. And I said, you're right, they are. Now, we in those circumstances where we were able to show a pattern that every single one of these was identical documentation and there was no justification for the quick to um, deny these, we have gone back and we have, um, we have actually pressured the QIC to give it to the actual medical director. Because one of the things <clears throat> that I don't think a lot of people understand, or not that they don't understand, that they may not recognize, because like you and I, Terry, we do these all the time. I actually, I handle um, probably, if I had to ask Amanda Wesh, um, I probably do about 150 ALJ hearings a year. Um, and that's the level five, so that's the highest No, level. the ALJ. The ALJ. Oh, the ALJ. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Love I do about 150 of those a year. I probably do about 100 cases a year with Amanda. Um, but what I will tell you is there have been times where, you know, we go back and, and you know, we said, look, we want the medical director involved. Because if you look at a, redeter- a reconsideration, it's usually a stamp signature by the medical director. But I can tell you with the volume of these QIC appeals that are taking place at level two, there's no way this doctor is signing off on every single one of these. So we pressured him and we've actually gotten the medical director a few times because we told him that we're going to issue a complaint with the Medicare administrative contractor and we're going to take it to the highest possible level at the MAC. And we're going to show them that there's a total disregard for the audit process. And we have, um, I would say probably over the last couple of years, about a half a dozen times, We've been successful with getting the medical director on the line who has come back and said at a later date, um, you know, within <clears throat> maybe 30 days, we get a, a, a follow-up letter that says, um, we have had an opportunity to re-review some of these claims and we do agree with you. We have thus issued a wholly favorable. So to me, I feel like some of this is still partially a game. Um, but again, yeah, if, if you don't meet that threshold to be able to take it to level three, unfortunately, unless you're able to demonstrate negligence uh, on the part of the QIC, you're, you're unfortunately out of luck. Yeah. And the one thing I was, I was going to kind of comment on, because I know that this, you know, appeals are expensive for any practice, for any hospital, for any entity, because you're spending time on things that you already made the assumption you were going to be paid on. And now you're having to go back and, and fight for your money. And now with the No Surprise Act, this is, I mean, outside of Medicare, that's going to elevate the the works. It's going to be involved for some appeals and, and things like that. So my um, question is to the listeners and, you know, give Sean and I some feedback with this. What are you, or should say, what staff members are actually involved in this appeals process? Because we know with redetermination, it's pretty straightforward as far as um, they get on the actual form that you use and the information. It's pretty straightforward. WPS, Novitas, and Noridian, for example, they have it right on their form on how to file it, what has to be um, part of that redetermination request form or in letter form. And it, it's sometimes right on the Mac's website. When the reconsideration's there, that's actually helpful because it's it's based on the redetermination um, outcome. And then they tell you what you need to do next if you don't agree with that level one decision. So it's pretty step by step. But then you get to level three, four and five. And now you have to have a little bit more, and I don't want to necessarily call it experience, but how about insight into how to complete the the escalation into the level three and level four appeals. So I'm actually interested in the feedback from your listeners. Um, you know, who who's in charge of that? Is it somebody in the billing office? Is it the actual provider? Is it the administrator? Um, you know, is it somebody that has not only knowledge on appeals and, and collections, but, or, you know, the revenue cycle manage, but management part of the uh, workflow, but is it somebody who understands local coverage determinations, nas- national coverage determinations? Um, I was just dealing with an appeal at this level recently where, oh my goodness, I have, I have uh, six patients that were in the ER for three days. Okay. So you sit there and go, how can you be in the ER for three days? Shouldn't they have either uh, admitted them or basically discharged them or done something else? 
Well, there was no beds available and they basically didn't know what they wanted to do with the patient. And of course, Medicare denied any services after the first 24 hours. And so um, we basically collectively had to do this as several appeals and we're at the, we were at the third level and talked to the medical director, like you said, but we had to also talk about the language of how things happen in that scenario. You know, who gets transferred? How does a transfer happen? Who's in charge of that? What was the diagnosis involved? So there's some complexities here that go a little bit beyond the appeal on who's providing that service um, in the office from an administrative standpoint, who's dealing with the appeal, but who knows how to speak the language to the actual uh, entity that you're sending the appeal to. So how, what have you found, Sean, in, in your, I guess, in, in your workings when dealing with this? Who's Who's been in charge of this? Who are you working with within your practices and your clients? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. And, and <clears throat> the answer is it really depends on the size of the organization. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, you know, in most of the one doctor, two doctor to five doctor practices, um, you may have a coder and or the office manager who is playing out multiple roles. And that individual is also responsible for filing the appeals in larger entities where you have maybe 10 doctors, you may have more staff, you may have individuals that have um, specific responsibilities such as, you know, Terry's responsible for all the billing, Sean's responsible for all the follow-up and appeals. Um, then you start getting to the hospital networks and you may have an entire department that's dedicated to it in the back office function. Uh, same thing at the integrated delivery health systems. So I think, you know, we'll get some varying feedback, Terry, um, for your question from the viewers, the listeners, um, to probably mimic somewhat what I'm what I'm actually giving as what I'm experiencing as the individuals who are actually handling the appeals process in their organization. Yeah, it really depends on finding on the size of the organization. But also the one thing that I, I would just really just really hammer into the listeners and really give make sure that they have this consideration. Know your rules. If you are going to keep taking this up the ladder, which I really think you should, if you feel that you've got a valid argument and a valid claim and, and you're entitled to, to that reimbursement, then you know don't, don't be intimidated by it, but make sure that you're following the rules and understand that now it's now when we get into the level three appeal, now you're looking at uh, information as far as the Medicare regulations, the Medicare rules, the determinations based on um, you know, policy and the manual and things like that, not necessarily just about, um, you know, medical necessity or things like that. This is now getting into things where you have to say, this rule says I get this and you aren't giving me that. So you kind of have to look at the the decisions. And I know you're also really big on some of those legal decisions that you can also uh, bring up from something in the past as well. So um, yeah, I think, yeah, for, I mean, and you have to know your timeline too. I had one recently that was about um, within the last year that was about pacemaker generator change out. Mm -hmm. So they kept taking it up the ladder. They were getting denied, denied, denied. And um, I was contacted to help them with the third and fourth level appeal. And I'm looking at these claims and the claims were, they were coded with um, dated codes. So I said, you can't code it that way because we now have one code that represents a generator change. And they're like, 
no, it's two codes. And I said, what CPT book are you using? And they were using one from two years before what they're actually looking at that was valid. So those kinds of things have to be considered. Yeah. So, you know, to, to one of the things that you brought up is a point about bringing up um, other decisions, other case rulings. Um, in administrative law judge hearings, these are all considered to be de novo. So de novo basically meaning they don't rely on um, or they're not required to rely on opinions or rulings from other cases, but they will entertain them. They will look at them. They will maybe or maybe not consider them as part of their ruling, their decision. Um, but I always think it's a good idea if you've had a prior ALJ hearing on a matter to Terry's point, such as uh, pacemaker generator changes, and you had a wholly, fi uh, wholly favorable outcome from the ALJ, um, bringing that up in the hearing that you're doing with that judge is never a bad idea. Just understand that you know, a judge may give you some pushback and say, keep in mind that this is a de novo hearing. I'm not bound to prior rulings. I will take a look at what information you're providing to me, and I will consider that. Um, and that's that's something, you know, I, I think that's part of the flaw in the administrative process with CMS is that these cases are de novo in that they don't have to rely on prior rulings. Now, in some of these cases, I'm grateful that a judge doesn't want to rely on the ruling of either a, a, another ALJ or an attorney adjudicator who can also be assigned to cases at level three. Uh, we had a case last year, myself and uh, I think it was Robert Lyles, that you know we, we decided not to do an actual hearing um, just based on the type of case it was. So we did what is referred to as an on-the-record hearing, meaning we submitted all of our documentation, our position papers, our expert reports, all of those different things. And the case was assigned to an, an attorney adjudicator. And when we got the findings back, when we got the decision back from the attorney adjudicator, Robert and I called each other and were like, there's no way they even looked at the facts of this case because what their ultimate decision was didn't even match the reason why we filed for the ALJ hearing in the first place. So, you know, there's there's positives and negatives to each of these things. But, you know, Terry, <clears throat> there were some significant changes to level three of the appeals process. And if you give me a moment, I'll, I'll try to get through a few of these really quick and then. Um, obviously if you, if you want to add on to that, that would be great. So, um, I know we're in 2022, but folks, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of practices have never gone to Terry's point to that level three, right. And, you know, Terry, you did say something that, you know, piqued my interest, which was they're costly going to an administrative yeah. lodge. Yeah. Going to an ALJ hearing, um, going to level four. And level five, forget about it. These are very expensive. And, and you need to make sure that it's not just $180 that's in question, unless you're proficient enough to do all of the work yourself. And there's plenty 
of people who are out there who are really good at their job, who understand this stuff and can actually file successful level three appeals. And I think that's tremendous. And, and, and I pat you on the back and, and tip my hat to you. But there's a lot of folks that have never gone through this process. And um, with that in mind, there have been a number of, there have been a number of um, changes that took place, such as the ALJs or attorney adjudicators have the right to vacate dismissals. Um, OMA has the right to request missing information that's essential to resolving issues on the appeal. Now, of course, you have to keep in mind that there's a tolling of adjudication timeframe. So you can hit your time frame, uh, for lack of a better term, a statute of limitations, if you will, right? And then they also, the ALJs and the attorney adjudicators, they now have the right to remand um, under their authority, um, inform, you know, the, these cases back to a lower level, um, you know, for missing appeal information or for a variety of other reasons. Um, the um, one thing that I do want to talk about is that under the regulations, um, they do require that any new evidence that an appellant is going to submit at the ALJ level, it needs to be accompanied by a statement explaining why the evidence was not previously submitted. So, Terry, if you if you recall, when we were doing part one, we talked about the fact that everything that you want considered at an ALJ hearing, because, you know, keeping in mind, odds are you're not going to be successful at the redetermination, and odds are you may or may not be uh, successful at the reconsideration level. So you want to go into your appeal filing at the very first level with an expectation that you are potentially going to have to fire file at an ALJ level three. And as we talked about, you want to make sure all of the documentation that needs to be considered at every level is submitted during the first two levels. And if you don't, the judge or the attorney adjudicator at level three has the right to say, I'm not accepting this. Right. And here's, but, here's another thing too, is that a lot of people ask me, well, do you think we have to hire a, an attorney or do you think we need to hire a consultant at, you know, every level? And for me, it's what you're comfortable with. Um, I, I think that you could probably get through the first process. The level one is, is something that every collector, biller, revenue cycle management person that's in there really needs to know how to do regardless of your title. But for example, and this is just something that came up, I'm just, just shocked at it, where it was about uh, signatures and how a signature on a medical record is required no matter what. Well, we had a, or authentication of the record, which is also a, a type of signature. But well, a couple of, of clients that I had, had a physician that basically said, I quit and left the practice. And they're like, well, what do we do with all the documentation and all the records that were not signed? Because everything said it had to be signed. So this practice basically um, signed everything with a different physician that happened to work there. And it was found out and there was a lot of controversy on that. And so they went back and asked for refunds and money and all this. And then they came to me after all this was happening. And I said, no, you actually have an out 
if you pulled up the code of federal regulation, because that code actually under, you know, 42 CFR 410.21, I mean, I actually know it like the back of my hand now, uh, it talks about medical record documentation that the physician may review and verify or sign and date rather than redocument notes in this scenario. So it talked about this scenario as far as uh, presence and participation if they are um, also a partner when this happens and you have to have a letter of abandonment, there's other things you had to have. But what was interesting is that the practice who was taking care of this, and just like Sean just said, the administrative law judge and the arbiter in the conversation, they were like, you should have known this before. This is information that you should have brought us at, you know, level three before you get, you know, level two and three before you even get to the higher level because they may not consider it. Luckily, in this case, they did because I found it interesting that the um, the MAC payer didn't actually know the rule. And so they're like, where'd you find that? And I said, it's right here. And they're just like, oh, boy, we didn't even know about that rule. But and that happens a lot in audits, not just when we're dealing with appeals. But um, it's really part of the due diligence to make sure that you have your ducks in a row if you're going to take this on. If not, you need to hire somebody or, or get involved with somebody um, like Sean. Um, I, I actually don't handle a certain level anymore past three, but I'm just looking at this and you need to have people that are uh, legal minds, compliance minds. Sometimes it's not just an attorney. You need somebody who knows compliance like the back of their hand. And the fact that, and, and I know, Sean, you're that guru, um, somebody that can get in there and say, okay, so where where is your compliance manual first? What's the follow-up with when you deal with this? What's your workflow process when you get denials like this? And who's in charge of making sure that you have everything before you move forward? And I think once you get to that level, you really have to have people who understand what's going on. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels. Absolutely yeah. just spinning your wheels. It's not even no, worth it. I, I agree with you. And, you know, look, um, you know, for me, the AOJ process has gotten more convoluted. It's gotten more difficult. Um, for years, I handled ALJ hearings myself personally, right? Because uh, I just felt comfortable doing it. Uh, I had a, a, a great rate of success with these things. Um, now, they've become more difficult for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I always, you know, past the second level, I always tell the client, look, the best thing to do is let's go ahead and hire a healthcare Senate attorney who does a lot of administrative proceedings with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I'll serve as your subject matter expert in the case, as your regulatory person. And, you know, that's the best way to do it. Now, there are still times where I will do an ALJ hearing, but it is only when it is on the record, meaning um, I've reviewed the case, I've talked it over with legal counsel, and they both, you know, we all feel that, look, this is a great case where it's really not going to be dependent on convincing, you know, the judge or attorney adjudicator based on somebody's testimony, but rather based on facts. Let's go ahead and create a factual document. Let's get them all the evidence that they need. Let's submit everything and handle it that way. And usually those are the ones that I, I, I will handle. Um, and then and let me just interrupt real quick. So here's yeah. just listeners. Here's what Sean's talking about. When he says ALJ, administrative law judge hearing, he's talking about level three appeal, correct? Right. Yeah, right. this is not the this is not the level five that some people think to the judicial review in district court. I know some people get this confused when you hear, you know, ALJ, you're thinking, okay, well, that's a judge, that's judicial. No, this is the level three. 
yet. This is so when you when you get past level four, which is an appeal council review, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, you you are no longer in the administrative process, right? You are now entering into the the court system. You're entering into a judicial review, which is held in U.S. District Court. So to your point, that is correct. Um, myself, Does this label I, a practice at all, Sean? Does this give a practice any kind of reputation, either good or bad, if they elevate it to this level? Um, I tell practices all the time, the more you appeal, the higher the levels you take these, as long as it's not based on principle and you have the outstanding dollar amounts to warrant going to these next levels and you know that you are technically and factually correct in your claim submission process, then yeah, the more you appeal your claims, the less likely they are to deny you. Here's an actual statistic. Um, less than 20% of all practices in the United States appeal their claims. Yeah, I knew 20%. it was low. Yeah. I knew it was low. 25% of all initial claims submitted for processing at the payer. 25% of those will be denied on the initial claim submission, irrespective yep. of whether the claim is accurate or inaccurate. They are going to deny that claim because they know less than 20% of all practices in the United States actually appeal their claims. And remember, you're not submitting a claim hoping to get paid. You're submitting a claim expecting to get paid. So if you don't appeal a claim that you feel that your provider is entitled to, that actually could be looked at as in a negative light, not just as bad faith, but what was your intent? Why did you submit that claim if you didn't expect to get paid on it and weren't willing to take it to the next level? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So a couple of things real quick that I want to I, I want to just point out about the ALJ process, because um, we were talking about the um, submission of new evidence at the ALJ level. And we talked about the fact that if you don't provide an explanatory statement as to the reason why there is good cause for the judge to consider this information being submitted late, they're not going to consider it at all. But the regulations also provide four examples, the number four, of when good cause may be found for the admission of new evidence. And those four are very straightforward. The first is the notice you were appealing was mailed to the wrong address. If you can demonstrate that it went to the wrong address, they have to accept it. That is good cause. Two, a Medicare representative gave you incorrect information about the claim that you're appealing. This is why it is so critical that you have to get the person's name, get their identification number. Um, you have a right to record. You have a right to record these conversations between yourself and the Medicare rep. And folks, keep in mind, one of the biggest areas of turnover at a MAC is at the customer service representative level. You know, and the other thing that you should think about, Terry, I know this has happened to you because it's happened to me more times than I've hair left on my head. You call and you speak to a representative who gives you a definitive answer. And it just sounds so good. It sounds right. And then all of yes. a sudden you say, you know, just for kicks and giggles, because I got nothing else to do today. 
I'm going to call back and waste another 45 minutes on hold just so I could talk to somebody else to see if I get the same answer. And you get somebody else on the line and they go, oh, no, 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 that's 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 not correct. No, what you're supposed to do is blah, 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 blah. And you're like, but Sean, Sean, uh, badge number ABC123 just told me that this is what. No, I'm sorry. Sean shouldn't have given you that information. That's not technically correct. Um, you know, I'm sorry if that's what was told to you, but you know, I mean, this is what happens all the time. So record these conversations. Um, and and keep in mind when when you're engaged in a um a discussion with somebody at a federal level, um, you do not have to have their consent to record. It's a one party um acceptance for the uh recording correct and and also you do have to do you have to let them know that you're recording um you you should you don't have to but you should and don't forget you know when you're on hold you know when you first call oftentimes you'll hear a recording that says um this call may be recorded for quality assurance purposes so they're telling you that the call may be recorded. You have the right to say to them, listen, I know you guys may be recording this, but for my own records, I am recording this call and it is a one party, um, you know, uh, authorization to do such. I, I, you know, I mean, you don't have to get snide with them or anything. Um, you, you know, it's up to you. Uh, I, I, I don't usually tell them I'm recording it. I just click record. And that way, I, I know what was said to me on the call. Yeah, no, I do the same thing. Now, and, and let's say that we've, so we've completed the third part, we're not getting anywhere. And now we're going into level four appeals. Now, this is by the Medicare Appeals Council. So the parties were dis dissatisfied with Omaha's decision. And now they want to request review by the council. And this is obviously a component of the HHS Departmental Appeals Board, and there's no money threshold for this one, um, but this one basically has to also be done within 60 days. So when you get to the level four, now now what are we getting into as far as what's the disagreement here? And, and is this now, um, you're including obviously the, dis, the disputed decision with the appeal, but what are you asking the council for in this level four? Yeah, so level four is a, is a departmental uh, um, it's what they call a DAB, a Departmental Appeal Board Review. And again, this is basically where we have received a filing um, or a decision from the ALJ, and we disagree with it. Uh, as I said just a few moments ago, you know, we, Robert Lyles and I, we had a decision that was rendered by an attorney adjudicator, and we were like, makes absolutely zero sense makes no sense whatsoever um so the way it works is this if a party um to an aoj hearing is dissatisfied with the aoj's decision that appellant that party has a uh, right to request what is referred to as a uh, departmental appeal board review or an appeal council review now um, there is no minimum monetary threshold required uh, to request an appeal council review because it's it's not actually another level of an appeal like your redetermination, reconsideration, or ALJ hearing. 
This is where we are saying we disagree fundamentally with the outcome of this ruling by the ALJ or by the DAB. And as such, we need you, counsel, to take a closer look to see if the judge misinterpreted or if the judge violated Medicare law in some way, shape, or form. That's the reason why there's no minimum monetary threshold that's required. Now, again, at level four, the request for appeal counsel review has to be submitted in writing, as all the prior levels do, within 60 days of you actually receiving the ALJ's decision. And you have to specify the issues and findings that are being contested. So what you want to do here is you want to refer to the ALJ decision. You want to give specific sections. You want to give you know, direct quotes from the ALJ. And then you want to be able to find Medicare rules or regulations, statutes. Um, and again, don't try to find things that are outside of Medicare rules and regulations, because that's what they are basing their decisions on. So again, as I said, refer to the ALJ decision for details regarding the procedures to follow when filing a request for the appeal counsel review. And the, the other thing that I would say is this, Terry. In general, the appeal counsel is going to basically issue a decision within 90 days of receipt of a, a request for review. Here's the yeah. thing. If you're, if you're just Sean Weiss medical practice and you're not, you know, doing these things on a regular basis, you know, disagreeing with the judge and going to the appeal counsel review, it's fine. Most of the time, it's no harm, no foul. Uh, the appeal counsel review will look at it and they'll either uphold the decision and they'll give specific citations of the statutes or the regulations. <clears throat> and that's really the end of it, unless there's a, a further fundamental disagreement with it. Um, for somebody like myself, um, somebody like an Amanda Wesh, somebody like a Robert Lyles or a Ron Chapman or, or, or a Gabe Empanado or a Lester Peerling, you know, a Jenna Milliger, a lot of times we don't like to go to the appeal council, um, especially when we know we're in front of these judges a lot. And you just don't want to get on the bad side of a judge. But at the same time, if they have completely misconstrued a regulation, if they have misstated facts in the case, then absolutely we file these level four DAB appeals because we need the record set straight and um and and look judges are human uh they make mistakes um you know hopefully they don't make them on a a regular basis but you know they make mistakes and you know we i, I actually i'll tell you a, a, a true story uh not that i would tell you a fake one um but <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I you know i i always wonder why people say i, I want to tell you this true story well, as opposed to what? Uh, I know. Made up false one. I, sometimes I just. You ever, it's funny. I'm going to drive off the cliff for a minute. You ever find yourself saying something and then going back and going, did I really just say that? I know. Well, it's funny to me when people go, so honestly, I'm like, have you been dishonest the whole time with me then? <laughs> I know. Like, I'm such I'm such a, a, a freak when it comes to, like, double negatives. It's so funny. Stuff like, oh, it drives me nuts. But anyways. I had this judge, um, it's probably about a year or 
Yeah, it's got no, it's longer than that because it was right before COVID started. Um, we were on the line and um, I had forgot that we filed this appeal council review uh, for this uh, one particular case. And um, before we went on the record, the judge said, oh, by the way, I was sent notice from the appeal council that you appealed my ruling on a particular case. And that that was like a moment where my stomach just went, and I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> I'm 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 in trouble." And I forget who the attorney on the phone was with me, but I remember getting a text, and they're like, "Wow, this case is not going to go well, is it?" And next thing the judge said was, "That was a good call on your part." He goes, "Because I obviously missed some of the facts that." were presented to me and no excuse I, I i've got so many of these things that i have to get through but you know i hope you know that was nothing intentional on my part and you know you were well within your right to go ahead and file for that appeal and i said your honor thank you so much i greatly appreciate your humbleness and you know your your understanding uh and he said no there's there's nothing to thank you know uh your client obviously should be grateful that you did your job and that was the one and only time I was ever praised by a judge. Every other time, I'm usually getting kicked in the rear end. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that because I got a, a, a praise by uh, one of the mediators from the Qualified Independent Contractors. And you know what the praise was? Terry, we appreciate you letting them know where to send the information because they always want to send it to the Mac carrier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's on the form. Yep. So I just thought that was funny, too. <laughs> Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about with the Appeal Council Review, and then we can get into Level 5, and then if there's anything that you want to go back and talk about for Level 3, we can. Um, okay. Keep this in mind. If the Appeal Council itself does not issue a decision within their applicable time frame, you as an appellant then have the right to appeal council to escalate the case to the judicial review. So if you go back to Part 1 of this podcast, and we were talking about the QIC, which is the reconsideration. If a QIC cannot issue their ruling, Sean, we lost you. You you timed out. You know, if they don't issue it within a, if they don't issue it within a certain time frame uh, at the QIC, you have the right to then ask for it to be escalated to the ALJ. And this is a situation where if the appeal council doesn't get it done in their time frame, then you have the right to ask for it to be escalated to a judicial review. And Terry, I'll go ahead and let you, um, if you want, go ahead and jump right into what the judicial review is, because there are some monetary thresholds. Yeah, so when you get into the ju judicial review, now you're requesting a federal court to actually review what's going on. So any party that is really not satisfied with the uh, Medicare Appeals Council, they can request a review in federal court. Um, or if the adjudication period for the council to complete the review has lapsed, that's another thing, and the council is unable to make a, an issue, a decision, dismissal, or a remand the case, then to the uh, OMAHA, then what they'll do is this could be an opportunity as well to escalate to a federal court. 
So when you file action in a federal court, and this is the level five, this is the fifth level appeal. It's called judicial review in federal district court. You have to do within 60 days that you receive notice from the council's decision. So the level four, um, the notice of the council's decision is presumed to be received five days after the date of notice, unless there's evidence to the contrary. So they're giving them that uh, snail mail time, if you will. And then in order to request judicial review in federal court, the amount remaining in controversy, so it may not be the entire claim, but it may be what's left that hasn't been paid, um, has to be in for 2022 calendar year, um, a 1760, so 1760. And then if the council doesn't issue a decision or remand to the case to the ALJ or attorney adjudicator within the adjudication period, again, factoring in any extensions that were requested, then again, it escalates to that fifth level of appeal. Now, just remember, when you get to that fifth level of appeal, I'm going to strongly recommend that it includes a healthcare attorney, healthcare consultant on compliance, a certified healthcare consultant, somebody who understands the process. You don't want to be held out to dry here um, as far as just winging it on your own. Absolutely. And I will tell you, um, judicial reviews, that's an area where I actually do a lot of testifying and um, engagement with different attorneys. And this is this is a lot of work and it is a lot of cost. One of the things that I tell clients all the time to be aware of is check your general liability insurance and also check and make sure that you're carrying errors in emissions insurance, you know, insurance, because oftentimes they will cover your legal fees and consultant fees when you're having to be represented during either an administrative process, such as going through a redetermination, reconsideration, administrative law judge, DAB review, and they will also cover your costs for attorneys and subject matter experts in judicial reviews. What they don't cover are any penalties that you have to pay back. Um, there's groups out there like the doctor's group, um, not affiliated to doctor's management, uh, Mag Mutual. There's other groups out there that provide this type of E&O insurance. You can always call your professional association. You can call your society and see who they recommend uh, for coverage. But again, just to kind of tie that bow on it, because Terry did such a great job. Um, you know, one of the things that Terry was talking about is the amount in controversy required to request judicial review gets increased annually. And this is under what is referred to um, as the Medicare component of the consumer price index for all urban consumers. And as Terry said, the threshold amount for 2022 is $1,760. So let's just kind of tie a bow. Let's tie a bow, if you will, around the three levels that we talked about today. Start with the last level that we just concluded with, Terry, if that's cool with you. Okay, so basically we've got our first uh, when to appeal and if make sure that you understand difference between a rejected claim and a denied claim 
And when you get at that denied claim that you need to appeal, level one is redetermination by the MAC carrier. So they're the ones that are actually looking at that from who you build the service to, and it's the name and address should be on the form. Level two, reconsideration by a QIC, that's a qualified independent contractor, and that means that you weren't happy with your um, your redetermination, so now you're taking it to level two for reconsideration and adding anything that was left out of what you did for your redetermination. Then we get into level three, and this is OMHA, that's the Decision of Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeal. Uh, I know a lot of people probably, I don't want to say stall there, but that's the administrative law judge hearing. And so, um, Sean, that's in person or virtual now? Do they have it virtual since we all had to pivot to virtual during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, the AOJ level three, these can be done one of two ways. They could either be done um, via Zoom or via the telephone. Uh, they'll give you that option. Or the third option is you can do what's called an on-the-record hearing, which means okay. you are not requesting an actual hearing where you're going to testify and present evidence. You're going to do everything on the record. You're going to submit everything in writing to the judge for his or her review and consideration. Okay. And then we get to the level four, which is the review by Medicare Appeals Council. So now they're looking at all parties' determination. So this is almost like, well, it actually is like this. It's basically a council or a collective body that's looking at um, the denials on both sides, the appeals, how, you know, where you've taken it and what the disagreement is and what action was taken. And now they have an opportunity from an appellate level or the level four appeals uh, to determine if there was a infraction of the rules that wasn't taken into effect when you got your appeal. And then cases not adjudicated within the timelines of that, um, the 180 days, or if you really believe that, again, this decision or dismissal order within that council wasn't accurate, now you can escalate it to a judicial review in U.S. District Court, but you do have a um, annual threshold requirement, meaning it's 1760 um, for 2022. So, and it, this will cost you some money to do that. So you really have to be mindful of if you're going to enter into the level five appeal, not only do you have a threshold on the claim total, but also on um, the people that you're going to have to use to um, make your point. Excellent. That's a great summary of these. There's, there's a couple of things that I want to also make folks aware of at the ALJ level, because that's where we saw the greatest number of changes a couple of years back. Um, the first of these is that the ALJ has the discretion in managing conduct. So what does that actually mean? Well, in the final rule, when it was issued, what it did was it strengthened an ALJ's discretion in managing the conduct of a hearing uh, to either limit testimony or arguments that are irrelevant, they're repetitive, or they're insufficiently developed. Um, an ALJ also is permitted to excuse a party or a representative that the ALJ deems uncooperative, disruptive, or abusive. Uh, this is why when we're doing prep for one of these hearings with our clients, I always tell them, if you can't control your anger, if you can't control what comes out of your mouth, if you are known as a verbal vomiter, 
I need you to keep your phone on mute until we say, Dr. So-and-so or expert so-and-so, here, you know, here's a question that I have for you. And then just the facts. Don't digress. Don't give a diatribe. Don't go off the reservation and start giving this whole dissertation and, and just rambling. The judge will cut you off. Um, if you use profanity, if you are snide or nasty or derogatory towards the judge, they're not going to hold you in contempt because this is not a court of law. They will dismiss you from the hearing, meaning your, your case is over. You've lost. Um, there's a, a few other things that um, changed. And again, uh, just for time purposes, I don't I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I will say this. I will make this information readily available to our listeners once we um, once we uh, conclude this podcast today. Um, but there were changes to the governing adjudication timeframes and the simplification of the escalation provisions. So any statistical sampling cases such as the required amount in controversy and what sample claim information is required for appeal is very relevant here. This includes statistically extrapolated cases, untimely asserted challenges to the statistical sampling and or extrapolation. And the final rule itself actually clarified the scope of the ALJ or the attorney adjudicators required review of the sample claims when they are issuing their decisions. And there is an entire section that was produced um, on statistical sampling initiatives by OMA. But you can also go to Chapter 8 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, and specifically 8.4 and 8.4.2, which talks about statistical sampling and extrapolation methodologies and the initiatives um, that can be deployed um, by the QIC and how the ALJs look at these. Uh, there's just a ton of information in here um, with regard to the 250 claim minimum threshold uh, for what they call multiple claim categories. Um, so again, lots and lots of uh, things to be aware of, lots of potential um, uh, missteps that could happen this is why I go back to what Terry st said at the very beginning. If you're going to go beyond level two, the QIC, um, make sure you engage with individuals who have gone down this road in the past, who are proficient, who understand you know, what it is to file an ALJ. But I dare say this, Terry. I actually think if you file a redetermination, which is level one, and you are unsuccessful at level one, I think folks should seriously consider prior to filing an appeal to the QIC for a reconsideration level two, I think that's the time that you get a professional engaged, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a consultant who specializes in this kind of work, because if you don't submit everything that needs to be submitted at level two. Demonstrating good cause to have it accepted at level three, oftentimes 
doesn't happen. So I encourage our listeners to begin engaging with professionals if they are unsuccessful after level one prior to going to level two, because there's a lot of things that I've learned over 27 years of doing this, such as creating clinical summaries or creating clinical rebuttals, making sure that you've done your diligence to identify the proper sections of the statutes, the regulations, the acts, the laws, the things that level the playing field and ensure due process for an appellant. And if you don't exhaust every avenue at level two, you're really setting yourself up for a lack of success at level three and beyond. So yeah, I would I would agree with that. The other thing is keep in mind too, and Sean and I actually mentioned this on previous podcast episodes, if you have a high error rate the CERT, that could lead to the TPE audits. And so we're talking about how to appeal, but just know you can't open yourself up for audits if you're not tracking those errors of those denied claims. Why are you getting the denials to start with? So really look into that before you you escalate it further um, if you're not getting success at the first and, and second level. Absolutely. Perfectly said. Anything else, Terry, that we either overlooked or we need to add to this discussion? I think we have wrapped it in a pretty pretty bow for them. So I think we've hit that uh, level one through five audit, or I should say appeals process pretty well. Good deal. All right. Well, everybody, again, for those of you tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my good friend, Terry Fletcher, thank you all so much for taking time out of what we know is an extremely busy schedule to listen in to what it is that we're talking about. And as always, we hope that our guidance and the information that we're providing for you is beneficial. Remember, what we're talking about is not legal advice. We are not attorneys. We are not paid spokespersons for a law firm. And the information that we are providing for you does not substitute for the qualified information of a healthcare-centered attorney. So with that said, Terry, thank you as always for spending your Tuesday with me and helping us to get out great information to our listeners. It's so much appreciated. Yeah, I really appreciate you being here or be, you asked me to be here, but also, you know, I know that just real quickly, I know that we do a lot of Medicare, Medicare, Medicare all the time. So maybe in an upcoming episode, we can maybe do a focus on how to appeal on a commercial plan individually. So we'll talk about that. Yeah. Well, if, if you feel like playing Houdini, we'll, uh, those are fun. Those are the yeah, fun part. Yeah, They're fun. And we could definitely do that because I've got some great commercial payer appeal letters that I've written over just the last year or two Same that I'd me. be happy. Yeah. That I'd be happy to share, but yeah, let's, let's get together. Let's talk about that. And let's come up with a game plan for that. And for each and every single one of you uh, hanging around with us uh, today, uh, thank you again. Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, take care. <laughs>